gun Ramos looking like he's got one more good run Sips a little shaky But his heart is still true Oh how that dog loves hunting with me and you Sporting dog adventures run The Sporting Dog Adventures podcast is proudly brought to you by Soggy Acres Retrievers. Remember, everyone deserves a Soggy Dog. Hello and welcome to the Sporting Dog Adventures podcast. This is episode number five of our podcast. And as we continue with the podcast, we're going to basically continue to evolve in how we set stuff up. Uh, This podcast, we're going to try to hit on the difference between American and English uh, Labrador Retriever lines. We're going to hit on training in the heat wave that is encompassed most of our country, which was a question from one of our listeners. And we're also going to talk about a duck calling tip. What I'm going to try to do in the future is make sure that we are hitting on hunting dogs and then our questions from our listeners so that we're giving everyone a little bit of variety. In the dog world, we all have an interest in many of the above that we're going to talk about as far as breeds, hunting, and and training. So I figured we'll try to hit on this and keep it so that we have a little bit of everything in our, our, our podcasts. Today, what I want to talk about is American versus British lines in Labrador Retrievers. Now, you will hear that British lines are more calm, that they aren't as high drive, that they are shorter in stature, that they have a better head, that they're a gentleman's dog. I will tell you that, honestly, a lot of it comes down to who you're breeding, uh, who, you're, who is running the breeding program and what they breed for. Um, I have English, I, I had English lines. Um, we decided to buy a couple of English dogs and we ended up getting out of it because the English lines I had back then, this was probably 12 years ago, they didn't do the health clearances on all their dogs, which was common in the American field lines. Now, I'm hopeful that most of your good kennels out there, regardless of American or English lines, are health testing uh, their, 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 their breeding stock and their dogs. So that would be testing for exercise-induced collapse, canine neuromyopathy. Um, the dogs I, I got from uh, a certain breeder, uh, they also had uh, something called uh, progressive retinal atrophy, so PRA. So you want to make sure that you're getting these tests done and on both. What I was told at the time when I said, hey, these dogs have recessive traits for this, I was told, well, yeah, recessive traits are okay, and we only check the stud dogs because that's all that really matters. Many of these things we can breed out of our lines by just checking them and keeping dogs that are clear. So hopefully that's changed. You will also hear that uh, that uh, your American field lines are hyper, uh, that they're taller, uh, and bigger, um, that they don't make as good a house dogs. Honestly, in my opinion, again, it comes down to what you breed for. I've seen wonderful English lines. I've seen wonderful American field lines, and I've seen bad of both. Uh, we had our dog, Pappy. Uh, he was a stud dog for us and was on our TV show, Sporting Dog Adventures. Pappy was actually out of an English uh, line 
I had a dog at my kennel that was just a phenomenal dog. He had run hunt tests. He had accomplished a lot. And I thought, geez, this is a great Labrador Retriever that I want in my lines. It was early on. I didn't realize the big difference, I guess, in how people looked at things. And maybe people don't look at it any different. I really don't. A good lab is a good lab. But we had Pappy, who I think at, when he was bred, he was a quarter English. And he was a smaller stature dog, but he still looked just like the rest of our dogs. As far as hyper in American field lines, many of your American field lines, you're looking at dogs that are running competition. And I will say that I have absolutely had dogs that were very wound. And a lot of that came down to these dogs were bred where I would deem it power to power. You're taking a dog with a huge title and breeding to a dog with a huge title. And you're not taking it into effect the temperament of the animals or even who's going to own the animals. If you have a dog that is just wound for sound and has a ton of goal, a lot of times that's not what you need uh, for your clients or what you want to buy as a, uh, as, as a person out there purchasing a dog because these dogs are all goal. They don't have a great switch as far as turning off and a lot of people just aren't they aren't the handler that can handle a dog like this. Now, does that mean that all field dogs are like this? Absolutely not. I uh, got two, two, two new stud dogs. We've got uh, Soggy Acres Red Baron. His name is Ace. And we've got Soggy Acres Sherman's March. His name is Tank. Both of those dogs, we made sure that they came up here, they lived with us, that they were nice house dogs, and that they were something we wanted to breed into our program so that we were putting out our puppies that we really strive to put out here at Soggy Acres Retrievers, which is a dog that, as we say, is fit for the couch or for the field. So you have to do your research on your breeding programs to make sure that they are putting together lines with lots of ability as well as lines with good temperament. Because honestly, if all they're doing is breeding American dog to American dog or British line to British line, I really don't care what their 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 philosophy is. If they aren't really looking at 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 the temperament and the drive of the dogs, I guess that there would be no philosophy. So those are questions you want to ask people as you're doing this purchase and as you're looking into uh, getting yourself a Labrador Retriever puppy. Now, as far as drive, I will say that predominantly the dogs I've seen uh, that are American field lines have a little bit more drive than the English lines. And as far as temperament, predominantly the English dogs, their temperament overall with the few that I've trained seem to be a little more chill and a little more calm. But again, if you get a dog from someone that is breeding for temperament, I really don't care what line you're drawing from, whether it's American or, or a British line. As far as size, I will say that the, uh, the the British lines absolutely were a little bit shorter dog. It seems that their their front legs are a little bit back further into their shoulder, and they have uh, they're running probably five to ten pounds smaller than a lot of your American field lines. As far as house dogs, I haven't had an English dog that was house dog. Pappy was, and he was a quarter English. You know. I think a lot of the house dog, again, it all comes down to temperament and then it comes down to the expectations that you have of your dog and spending time with them so that they understand the structure. But uh, I, 
there, there really hasn't been a huge difference that I've seen um, in the kennel uh, that would that would make me lead one to be better than the other. As far as health clearances, again, you want to make sure that your dogs are EIC clear, CNM clear, that uh, their eyes are checked, uh, that they're, uh, if they need to be checked for PRA, there are other things that you, that you can check for as well. You want to make sure that they are going through these procedures so that you're getting a healthy dog genetically. All puppies are cute. You want to make sure you're getting a healthy dog genetically so that you don't end up with something that causes you to not be able to use the dog for what you want to use it for or causes you a ton of vet bills later on. Uh, Competition-wise, as far as titles, that's the one thing that I see that uh, is, is somewhat different. I haven't seen a lot of English lines that run competitively. And by that, I mean having an FC, AFC, uh, being qualified all age, having a Master Hunt title, a Finnish title, which is an HRCH in front of their name. I haven't seen a lot of English kennels that have this. I'm not saying that they don't exist because I do see some, but generally speaking, I have heard from several people that will call some of these kennels, they'll say, well, this breeder only breeds for the love of the breed. To me, that's a caution. I look at it and go, okay, for the love of the breed, we're all in business. Uh, we, we, if, if your dog could pass a, uh, a hunt test, you would probably run them uh, so that you had that. So are these dogs unable to run in competition? That's where I would really question. I don't want to hear I, I do something for the love of the breed and, and, and not have any title dogs in a pedigree. Because when you look at a pedigree, you are looking at something that is showing the lineage of past generations. The easiest way to explain it would be if you are going to take a child and that child was out of two Olympic athletes... And then you're going to take a child that was out of just two common people like myself and Kate who have never been professional athletes. Which child would be more suited uh, to run competition and have better natural ability in that type of competition, which is hunting? Obviously, it would be the child from the Olympic athletes. So when you look at your past pedigrees on dogs, when you see these titles in a five-generation pedigree, you can look and go, okay, all these dogs had immense talent and ability. So I know that that is going to translate hopefully to my puppy. So you want to look, you want to make sure that these dogs have titles. You want to make sure that they're that 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 at some point uh, at least the stud dog is running competitively. The way we do it, we don't run our females uh, in competition because they're placed in homes, but we do run our males competitively and have master titles on them qualified qualified all age, uh finish titles. We have different titles and different levels we have to get to them too before we'll use them so you want to make sure that these dogs that you're looking at have this in their in their uh, in their pedigrees of the past so that you're seeing this natural ability uh, the other thing that you look at is trainability and you want to make sure that dogs are able to uh, do certain things if if they're there where you can see it and they don't have titles you want to make sure the dogs are able to go out and retrieve and that they can take pressure as far as as far as uh, making them do what you want from an obedience way and so that they they are basically set up so that when you are getting to the point where you're going to do your field training on them you can get through your force fetch your retrained retrieve you can get through your collar conditioning and you can work them on these different things so that the dogs can perform in the field once you have them and even if you're just looking for a pet having a dog that is trainable is very important because even obedience 
a lot of dogs don't take to it well if they aren't bred well. So you want to make sure that you're putting them in a position so that when you have this dog, they're able to succeed at whatever job that you're going to be giving them. This part of the podcast is brought to you proudly by Mech Outdoors. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our next part is going to be a question from one of our listeners. Every week, we have listeners that send in questions that we can use and answer here on the podcast. If you want to send one, send it to sportingdogtv at gmail.com, and we would absolutely love to use your question on our show. This week's question was, how do you work with dogs when there's extreme heat like we're seeing in most of the country. Now, <laughs> many of you will probably laugh because extreme heat to me is over 80 degrees, personally. Uh, dog training wise, when we start getting up around 90 degrees, that is very hot for dogs. They have a heavy fur coat. Dogs do not perspire except for slightly through their paws and they will breathe panting to relieve heat. So when you're trying to work with a dog and you're trying to have them retrieve and hold on to stuff and they need to pant, you're making it very difficult to them. The other thing you need to look at is when you were in heavy cover, when they are in down in, let's say two feet of grass or four feet of grass, the humidity level is higher, there's no breeze, and the temperature is gonna be higher down there comparatively to if they're out in an open field. So you wanna keep all of this in mind when you're working with dogs in heat. The easy way to explain it is during times like this, I think we're going to have probably right around three weeks as of right now, that's going to be 90 plus uh, here in Wisconsin. I start early. Uh, I usually would go out, I would feed dogs, let it, let them settle for an hour. I would do some paperwork and then I'd go back and work them. Now I'm going out in the morning, I'm letting the dogs out. I go over to our puppy kennel, I feed the pups, I come back, I bring the dogs in. I fill all their water dishes, make sure that they can hydrate that morning, and I start working with them right away. I don't feed them until after I work with them. Two reasons. One, it's cooler out, so obviously that's why you work with them right away. But two, if you're feeding them and then working with them, it's not safe for the dog. And also, they will ingest a ton of water in his heat, so you end up where the food comes back out and they regurgitate just because of the fact that they suck in so much water, it doesn't sit well with all the food in their stomach and then it, it expands and they have to throw up. I work with them on shorter sessions um, early in the morning and then I always take them out in the evening and do a fun session with the dogs. But again, a lot of that time, a lot of the time when I'm doing my fun session, it's multiple dogs and it's not working anything except for building attitude. But what I do is I almost look at it as working on modules. Uh, for instance, right now we're working on getting the dogs to be finished up on their retrieves. They're leaving on their name, so they're being corrected if they break when, they, when, when the bumper is thrown. They need to pick up the bumper and bring it back to hand if they don't. Again, we're working on finishing retrieves, which is trained retriever force fetch. So we're correcting them and making them finish all the way to hand, or we're correcting them if they drop and making them hold and then taking it from them. I'm doing this on land for three retrieves and then on water for three to six retrieves. So we're getting our land work in and then going right to the water so we're cooling the dogs off. So that's what I'm doing right now with the dogs. And again, doing it early, starting at six o'clock, being done by 10 o'clock. 
the other thing to keep in mind when you're working with dogs, even if it's in water, if you have a pond, we have three here on the property, that top layer of water during the heat of the day is probably near what the air temperature is. So it doesn't cool a dog off to have them more than when they're overheated to put them in 90 degree water. If you're down south, it could be even hotter. You got to keep that in mind while you're working with them so that you're doing what's safe for them and getting them out, getting their job done, training what you were going to train, and then putting them away safely. Our kennel is also air conditioned, so when the dogs get done, they go back into 70 degree air conditioning. That helps a lot too. So it's, it's, it's just making sure that they're in a situation where you don't let them overheat and then you can get them cooled off uh, once training is over. So thank you so much for that question. Again, if you want to send a question in, sportingdogtv at gmail.com. We may use it on our podcast. This portion of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Boucher Automotive in Janesville, Wisconsin. All right, this week's hunting tip. Hunting season is coming. And if you've watched the show you probably realize I am not a championship caller. I do not go into these long hail calls and routines when ducks are in the air. I've hunted with some people that are phenomenal callers and that really understand ducks and that can do great with these, uh, with these different sequences. What I will tell you is that I've killed a few ducks in my day and I basically keep it very simple. My kids, if they're along, I will tell them, just fill with background noise. Just give us quacks. Quack, quack, quack. I will hail if a bird is uh, looks like they're going to fly by us. And then once they come in, I will just go with lower quacks and quieter. And if they look like they're going to finish, I just shut up. I try to call as little as possible. And I've learned that just watching the birds. I used to try to call more because, you know, it's exciting. You're out there. It gives you something to do. But I think I've honestly flared more birds over calling than I have just keeping it simple and trying to mimic what we hear. What I do with my kids is I take them out on our marsh and I let them listen to the mallards as they're out on the marsh so that they can hear how they act. And I will tell you, I have never heard a competition mallard. So it is something where if you keep it fairly simple, maybe with a three note or five note call, if the birds are flying past and not stopping or just keeping it with just quacks so that it sounds like the birds are mingling and, and uh, just talking to each other. I think that can make you very successful in your upcoming season. And that will be all for episode five of the Sporting Dog Adventures podcast. God bless. Thank you for listening. Sporting Dog Adventures, run, boy, run. Everything you need is here under the sun. Everything you need is here under the sun.